Good morning. This is the Medical Sports Nutrition Broadcast with myself, Andy Matheson. This is the first podcast, so firstly just a little introduction. What it's going to be is a rundown of some recent journal articles and papers on changes uh, in the science of sports nutrition. And most weeks I'll also just cover an area where our views and ideas about something in sports nutrition are changing. Firstly, a little bit about myself. I'm a medical doctor, GP, working in the UK. I'm a certified sports nutritionist. I've always loved elite sports, um, rowing in particular. And I decided to get more into sports nutrition when I realized that Firstly, there were areas that, quite frankly, my patients knew more than me about. Um, I had one patient who was a very keen bodybuilder, and I would regularly not understand a word he said in a consultation. So it made me think, why is that? What do I need to do about it? And the basic answer is medical schools have to cram a lot in, and nutrition's often at the bottom of the pile. So I don't think I ever really learned more than the basic biochemistry. The other reason I decided to do the podcast is because uh, as someone who's getting older, got young children, I've just turned 40, I thought, actually, maybe there's an easier way to do this than just slogging away on the rowing machine and eating pasta. Uh, Maybe there's an easier way to to keep your weight down. been aware of the stuff that's going on and I've tried low-carb diets, intermittent fasting, and I've never really quite understood why I'm doing it or why it might suit me. So I've got into sports nutrition and I'm going to share some thoughts with yourselves. What first? Well, we're going to cover a few different articles that I thought looked pretty interesting. Now, much of sports nutrition research as a doctor seems to be small studies by small groups. There's not the funding that there is in cancer research. And this can make it quite hard to to know whether or not to to really believe them, to to understand what what we're meant to take from, from these tiny little studies. You could say it's the same with sports physiology in general. Still don't know why we get tired. Um, there's just such huge areas of unknown that uh, the more you dig into it, the uh, the bigger the holes that you find. And the first article we're going to cover probably fits into that category. Now it's by uh, Professor Morton's team uh, at Liverpool John Moores. So we know straight away it's going to be well run, well designed and the biochemistry is going to be good. And it's about, it's called glycogen utilization during running, intensity sex, and muscle-specific responses. And it's not a big study, and presumably it's it's part of something that will lead to, to more work down the line. But the thing that they show here that's fascinating is that actually women and men use glycogen differently at different intensities. Now, that means that once again, where 
most of training programs we've seen kind of treat women like small men, the same as in the military, we give women just small men's kit or running issue manufacturers and bike manufacturers traditionally have just given them small men's bikes. Again, writing our training programs, if you've been treating women like small men, you've not been targeting what you thought you were targeting. They don't use the glycogen at the same intensities and, it, and it's, it's used differently. So it will be fascinating to see where the group go with this um, and comes under the category of, I can't believe they've not, it's not been done before. Um, so that's the first one. There'll be all the um, uh, details for each of these articles on the uh, Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast Facebook page. So on to the second article. So we are going to do one about, far less impressive if we're being completely honest, but a nice little idea, something about beetroot juice. So it's called Acute Beetroot Juice Supplementation Attenuates Morning Associated Decrements in Supramaxal Exercise Performance in Trained Sprinters. And this one caught my eye for a couple of reasons. The main one is it just reinforces that idea that we really underestimate how much of a difference the diurnal variations in cortisols and hormones have on our bodies. And it's really difficult to do anything about that. You either do what the NFL guys do, for example, and you plan very, very carefully how you're going to wake up earlier when you're moving across time zones or having to, to get up early for yourself. Or you try and find a way around it. And uh, Dumar and colleagues have thought they might have found a, a way around it. Um, there's only 10 people in it. It's um, the usual sort of sports nutrition trial with kind of college level rather than elite sprinters, um, small numbers, and a just significant um impact of the uh, intervention which in this case is just taking beetroot juice however if i was an athlete that had to perform to most of the athletes that have to perform something like a rowing machine test in in my sport of playing another game of probably taking beetroot juice already for the nitrates um would i push it a bit harder especially if they had a early session or had to change time zones yeah why not unless they don't like beetroot juice in which case you're just going to give them uh, an IBS flare and not be very helpful. So the third paper, um, going back into the more heavy hitting stuff. So this is about the idea of relative energy deficiency in sport. And this one again is mostly interesting for who's on the title, who's written it. And it's Louise Burke, um, obviously one of the, the biggest names in uh, sort of sports physiology and nutrition. This is called overtraining syndrome and relative energy deficiency in sports, shared pathway symptoms and complexities. And essentially what they're saying is that often when we label someone as overtrained, actually they've just not got enough energy intake. And that's going to have a couple of big knock-ons for the way I approach overtraining in patients. The first one will be that 
if that's the case, and actually I'm misdiagnosing, I think, uh, I'm going to use the phrase misdiagnosing someone as relative energy as overtrained rather than energy deficient, because I've not had the time to do a proper run through their training load and run through their um, energy intake and break it all down. If I see someone in clinic and I misdiagnose them with overtraining, I'm going to treat it wrong. Because if it's relative insufficiency, they need their energy intake going up. Now, the treatment of overtraining and dropping the training load down will also work, but it's not fair on that athlete. How will you tell the difference? I hear you ask. Well, that's going to be tricky. And people who like relative energy deficiency will say, well, you can do some blood tests, look at thyroid, look at testosterone, yada, yada, yada. But they also change in overtraining syndrome sometimes. So I suppose I'd probably just do a trial of treatment in the first place and say, look, it could be one or the other. Sounds from your history like it's uh, you've not taken enough energy in. Let's just whack it off and see if you start feeling better. Um, where are they going with this? I don't know. I suppose what we're going to end up with is the awareness, actually overtraining syndrome is a bit like IBS. It's an umbrella term that's pretty meaningless. And essentially just says, you're not functioning at the level you should. I don't know why. And some of it's going to be post-viral. Some of it's going to be relative energy deficiency. And the skill of the, the physiologist, the doctor is going to be in figuring it out. And if you don't get it right, your athlete's going to struggle. So interesting idea and certainly one that challenges the way I practice. Now, the final paper today is on glycemic index. It's called Effective Low Glycemic Index or Low Dietary Patterns on Glycemic Control, Cardiometabolic Risk Factors and Diabetes, Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis. And this is a big one. This is in the BMJ, large study by Stephen Piper and all. Um, now, I suppose, bottom line up front, it's not going to change anyone's opinion. If you're a fan of glycemic index, this will provide you enough proof to stay a fan of glycemic index. If you're not, you'll point out that it's a meta-analysis of uh, 29 pretty poorly done trials and not really going to change what you do. And everything to do with um, risk factors and diabetes now must be looked through the kind of prism of what uh, Professor Taylor, Roy Taylor has done up at Newcastle. How can, uh, in a meta-analysis, they control for our new understanding about what diabetes is and um, the way it can be treated with uh, calorie restriction? Um, how much of the effects in those trials are due to that rather than the glycemic index? They can't. Um, so uh, I think if someone who feels that glycemic index is probably just a surrogate marker most of the time for producing carbohydrate load or um, just calorie, total calories, uh, I think it's probably a bit of a waste of time, this trial. But if you disagree with that and you like glycemic index, worth a read um, to uh, give yourself a bit of a nice echo chamber. And that's us done for today. Thank you very much for listening in. Next week, we will, no, next month, we will cover some more papers 
and also do a re review of an interesting upcoming area in sports nutrition. Thanks very much for listening.